welcome back to Stream Again, the podcast where we try and fail to watch everything on TV, streaming, and beyond. I am your captain, Chris Barlow, and I am joined by the scourge of the high seas, Diane Nora. Hey, Diane. Hi, I'm so excited about uh, being a, a gentleman pirate with you tonight, uh, I know, just two gentleman pirates out for a <laughs> stroll, here to talk to you about a little show called Our Flag Means Death, which airs on HBO Max, and we will talk all about the entire first season. We went for a full season binge here, and we are uh, just up to our eyeballs in salt water, ye mateys. <laughs> But more more bad jokes like that to come, because first, we have to get to what was and continues to be an extremely busy week in streaming news. Yes, as we sit here recording this on Tuesday night, April 19th, 2022, the news has arrived from here and far that the Netflocalypse is upon us. Mm. Not to be confused with any peacockalypses. No, no, this peacockalypse, peacockalypse coming soon to Hulu. This is the Netflockalypse. I thought about Net Netflageddon, but that that really doesn't roll off the tongue either. Uh, you know, but the Netflockalypse, we can get there. We can make this a thing, especially with the branding. You heard it here first. That's right. And now, dear listener, you might be wondering, but what is the Netflockalypse? What are we? talking about exactly well we're talking about everyone's favorite subject quarterly earnings and now i can just see the the subscribers fleeing fleeing for the hills but no come back come back because this affects you if you enjoy streaming media and in particular a tiny little streaming upstart called netflix you might be curious to know that for the first time in years in a decade they have lost subscribers 200,000 subscribers, to be exact. And that is actually the the small piece of this story, because in the first quarter of 2022, they lost 200,000. But then, by the way, they think they're going to lose 2 million in quarter two. Diane, what is going on here? That's just an outrageous amount of people. I mean, I think that we can attribute some of this to the recent price hikes. Yes, I already was texting with some friends today, and both of them mentioned the price hike as specifically as just their man-on-the-street impression of what's going wrong here. And both of them mm-hmm. said if they were not getting a price reduction, either through their uh, T-Mobile gives them a price reduction in one case, or in another case, they're sharing it with the uh, parents. And, and both of them said, I would not pay $20 a month myself for Netflix right now. And I thought that was telling even though, admittedly, very small sample size. Sure. I mean, that makes good sense to me. And I also think this probably won't be a reason that Netflix execs use. But, Uh I mean, Netflix content lately hasn't been drawing me in the way that some other streamers' content has. No, and and if you remember back to an earlier episode of Streamageddon, uh, Netflix gave a little bit of a warning at the beginning of Q1 that they, they saw their streaming slate for the first half of this year as being a little light. They found a very polite, very diplomatic to Wall Street way of saying, we don't have a lot of hits on deck right now. And and I think it shows. Bridgerton season two hasn't really been all that buzzy. And there's not much else. They are really pumping up uh, the return of Stranger Things coming soon. 
And they're drawing that out, not just through one release, but two releases. So that's going to draw people through at least two or three months worth of their subscription. And and it seems like they are stretching things right now. Should have made Bridgerton gayer. They should have. We're going to talk about queer baiting later, which is exciting. But, it, you know, uh, Netflix did provide some context, let's say, that this all came out in the quarterly uh, investors call where they talk to analysts and they reveal the good, the bad, and the ugly about their financials. And uh, they came up with four reasons for their decline in uh, subscribers in this past quarter. And I, I'm going to go through them in reverse order. They, they went through them in a specific order. I think it's more interesting to do it backwards. So uh, reason number four, ladies and gentlemen, is the economy stupid? Inflation, war, everything's bad. One thing to point out, the 200,000 lost subscribers, this does not include Russia, where they cut off service because of the invasion of Ukraine. So this is 200,000 non-Russian subscribers who were lost. So before you go, well, yeah, that was just, you know, a, a stance against war. No, they also lost subscribers from that. This is just 200,000 people who quit. It does make sense, though, with rising costs of so many household goods that if people are looking to cut back, that, you know, where you're putting your money in streaming might be something you've considered. So putting that on top of a price hike, I could see, you know, some people saying, hey, this just isn't worth it for me anymore. It's or over, for my family. If, if you do the maximum tier of Netflix with 4K and the, the most number mm-hmm. of simultaneous streams, you're paying over $200 a year. And that's when people's budgets start to uh, speak up. When you do that 12 times the monthly fee and you realize just how much money is going to the option to rewatch Seinfeld reruns, which admittedly is an important option to have in life. But is it worth $240 a year? You're yada, yada, yadaing with your face. I can see it. (laughs) I mean, Seinfeld is is worth more than life itself to me, but... Maybe but, not $240. See, oh, those are two different measurements right there. And uh, that is just reason number four. Reason number three they cited for uh, their drop in subscribers is competition. Because as you just said, there is a lot of other streaming options to choose from. And in fact, almost every other streaming option available right now is cheaper than Netflix. Hmm. And I think they didn't they didn't make that point themselves. They they phrased it as, you know, for years we've had competition from, you know, linear television and uh, Amazon and that Hulu thing. But now every entertainment company wants to have a streaming service. So there's just so much competition that is cheaper that than is- Netflix. <laughs> I mean, I I think there's a lot of truth to that. If I broke down uh, my monthly viewing among apps, I imagine that Netflix would be among the lower ones. Me too. uh, Compared to, say, Hulu or HBO Max right now. And, And again, this gets maybe more into taste and what we seek out on our streaming apps. But for me, Netflix is the one where I am most likely to be watching something that is just filler content. Something that I am putting on while I do something else or while I'm falling asleep or while I'm checking on my island in Animal Crossing. It is not the one that I'm going to for appointment viewing right now. I'm in the same boat. Mm. 
So are many people, I think, which now brings us to the two juiciest reasons Netflix gave uh, for the slump in subscribers. So reason number two, and here I am going to read the quote from the earnings call as quoted in Variety. Uh, According to this, they said, In addition to our 222 million paying households, we estimate that Netflix is being shared with over 100 million additional households, including over 30 million in the UCAN region. And uh, UCAN, while sounding a lot like toucan, is not a bird. It is the uh, buzzy Wall Street term for the US and Canada. So right there, just break that down for a second. They think they have 100 million password-sharing households who are not paying right now. Number two, they think 30 million of those people are in the U.S. and Canada. I only know 15 million of those people, so I can't verify the whole number, but I'm not sure that that estimate is an exaggeration. It is wild numbers. And of course, if you've listened to Streamageddon before, you know that Netflix is piloting some password sharing fees in South America right now. And while they have insisted this is just a a pilot to see how that goes, to see if people would be interested in kind of upgrading their membership to include maybe friends or family members who live outside the house like adult children, uh, let me tell you, a comment like this in front of Wall Street suggests that they are thinking very hard about expanding the reach of any password sharing um, I don't want to call it a crackdown. Let's call it a password sharing uh, invitation to pay. A, a gentle reminder. Yes, yes. And of course, uh, there's one more reason they gave, the kind of primary reason they gave for their slump. And again, here I am going to just quote uh, what Variety said, Netflix said on the call. It's increasingly clear that the pace of growth in our underlying addressable market broadband homes is partly dependent on factors we don't directly control, like the uptake of connected TVs, the adoption of on-demand entertainment, and data costs. And and that's an interesting word salad, uh, because it is, uh, at least in my, you know, somewhat informed reading, Netflix saying, no, 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 don't worry, we haven't run out of customers. The problem is that it's harder for our Uh, potential new customers to get the infrastructure they need, the good broadband with unlimited data, with a good connected TV that has the right streaming apps on it. And, you know, I I have the perspective of somebody who lives in coastal America, where uh, while our internet is not phenomenal, we have all of the things we need to stream all of the things we want to stream. Mm -hmm. And there are obviously parts of the world and even parts of the country where that is not entirely true. But it it was an interesting, I don't want to say excuse, but I'm going to say excuse. It was an interesting excuse for them to lead off with to say, no, 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 guys, don't worry. We know we're going to lose two million more people, but it's not because we've run out of people. It's because it's, you know, this very intractable problem about infrastructure and data. Wasn't there a significant part of that um, recent infrastructure bill dedicated to broadband expansion? Yeah. Yes. So, you know, maybe maybe Netflix will fish their wish there. And, uh... I, you know, maybe they are lobbying a bit in that to try to get a little more uh, government money or government speed into some of that broadband rollout. I, either way, as of this recording, Netflix stock is down 25%. 
we'll see where that goes. We're not really a business stock podcast, but if you're into the stocks, then now you know that's a stock that I hope you do not own right now. Uh, And if you do, I'm not here for your investing advice. You really should not listen to me whatsoever when it comes to stocks or bonds. Business stock experts. That's correct. You're listening to the Business Stock Expert podcast, where we will tell you, oh, God, it's down. Sell, sell, sell. Is that what you're supposed to do? Uh, Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe hold off and watch some TV and then think on it. That's what you're supposed to do. And, you know, there, there is plenty of good TV to watch. A lot of it happens to be ad-supported, which is where we get to our uh, second, let's say, second phase of the Netflockalypse. Because in the same investor call, Netflix co-CEO Reed Hastings said that Netflix is going to do an ad-supported plan. It is not close. They said one to two years away while they figure it out. But this is Reed Hastings, a man who has notoriously laid the claim that Netflix is a direct subscriber a platform that Netflix is about the simplicity and purity of no ads. And he said, uh, this is a quote from The Hollywood Reporter, again, quoting Reed Hastings on the call. Uh, Reed said, those who have followed Netflix know that I have been against the complexity of advertising and a big fan of the simplicity of subscription, which I, I just want to pause and say, are ads really that complex? They're they're not fun, they're not enjoyable, but they are dead simple. You just sit through them. But I I digress. Uh, Reed added, But as much as I am a fan of that, I am a bigger fan of consumer choice and allowing consumers who would like to have a lower price and are advertising tolerant get what they want makes a lot of sense. Which, which truly is just the most, like, per- per- parenthetical, in a parenthetical. It, you know, if you are cheap and tolerant of crappy ads, and if you like to choose bad things, well, who am I to stop you? I like that the advertising intolerant sound like they perhaps have, like, intestinal issues yes. or something. Yeah, whenever I see ads, it just flares up. It's a, a real <laughs> curse. That's a, a hell of a euphemism. Yeah, and I have a feeling we might be cruising into a few more quarters of Netflix euphemisms as they, uh, I think, ride out what is it going to be a choppy period in their history, perhaps, where they adjust to perhaps having plateaued in some ways. I, I do think that, yes, there are more potential Netflix customers in the world. That is true. And their strength remains their international footprint and their commitment to Uh, you know, very international content and making Mm -hmm. international shows successes in other regions. So they they have a lot of strength and a lot of room to grow there. But that is a that is where you really do come up against the digital infrastructure divide, I think, in a lot of places where, you know, Netflix has got to overcome a whole potentially nation's digital landscape let alone regulatory landscape, in order to increase their subscribers and, and might have to sell their service at a loss in other countries in order to grow there. 
like a startup. The problem is they're a super mature company now, and Wall Street won't look at them like a startup. And so they are in a position where they have to kind of have it both ways for a while. And so I think we'll hear a lot more, you know, very diplomatic comments about the advertising tolerant and the unpaying households who we would like to invite in to paying in new ways. Well, we'll keep you posted on all of these updates as they come in. And you know what you'll you'll hear every time? And that's been this week in the Netflockalypse. We have to move on now to another really successful... Str- I'm sorry, I, I'm told it's not successful whatsoever. Um, uh, oh, I, I see. It's that bad, huh? Wow. Maybe we should go back to a happier topic like the Netflockalypse, but... I will not play the sound again. Instead, I'll tell you that what I'm talking about is CNN+. And this Mm -hmm. is where, if I had had more time, we would have heard some version of, this is CNN. (laughs) So you can just imagine that. I only had time for one of them, and, and we know which one I picked. I think I made the right choice, too. This is CNN. Hey listener, Chris here. As you might have just noticed, I did find the time to make the CNN kablooey sound effect that I I said I would never make, Uh, but I I had no choice because we have some late-breaking news that I need to share with you, and uh, apologies, you might want to sit down for this one. It's, uh, It's tragic. CNN Plus has officially been CNN minused from the CNN family. Uh, Because we found out less than 48 hours after recording this episode that incoming CNN CEO Chris Licht held an all-hands meeting on Thursday where he announced that CNN Plus is already canceled, is literally lasting less time than Quibi. And I just need that to sink in for a moment, dear listener. Quibi outlasted CNN Plus. And so, of course, I I had no choice but to make the this is CNN sound effect now, while we still have a chance to enjoy the sweet sound of James Earl Jones exploding in a crash of thunder. And so I I hope you appreciate it as much as I do, and I hope you appreciate our uh, conversation about CNN Plus, which, again, was recorded on Tuesday, so we did not know what was coming, and yet, as you listen to it, I think you will realize we absolutely knew what was coming, and it was so very, very inevitable. And so I say to Chris Licht, who uh, had originally told us he was not starting the job until May, well, Mr. Licht, you were off to a fantastic start. Unless, you know, you're Wolf Blitzer, in which case I guess this is bad news. I don't know. I'm a fan of schadenfreude. So please, Enjoy, because... This is CNN. I think a lot of people still aren't fully aware what CNN Plus is. Yeah, this, the sound effect really needs the, the audience to catch up first. I think you're right. So, so maybe we should back up for a second and say, what, what is CNN Plus? Why, why is it even news that it is, according to Axios, doomed? That was a headline we saw. CNN Plus is doomed. Uh, Well, CNN Plus is a streaming service from CNN. This much you might have figured out, dear listener. But but here's the part that, again, will potentially blow your mind. Um, CNN Plus does not feature CNN. 
It is not CNN plus more things. It is CNN minus CNN plus some things featuring people who you have seen on CNN. And some people you've seen elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, huh? Mm-hmm. It's kind of um, not CNN plus as much as it's plus CNN-ish. Mm. Breaking. Yeah. Uh, it, it It's breaking. It's just breaking. Breaking apart. Yeah. Yeah, CNN Plus launched uh, a few weeks ago now, and it launched at a really terrible time for a, a CNN product to launch because, uh, number one, CNN currently has no boss. Uh, Jeff Zucker was forced out, and Chris Licht, we've talked about this before, Chris Licht, the former EP of uh, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, his first day on the job is May 2nd. He has not started the job yet. He does not work there yet. There is just nobody really in charge of CNN. Add to that the fact that CNN is a division of Warner, which a week ago I would have referred to as Warner Media, but is now part of Warner Brothers Discovery, uh, or as I'm going to try to uh, make popular, Wabro Disco. Huh? It's punchy. Wabro Disco. <laughs> I, I think we can make this happen. So, of course, now, uh, within the last week, the uh, acquisition slash merger slash kind of Frankensteining of uh, Warner Brothers and Discovery uh, completed, which means CNN suddenly is owned by Discovery. And, and this all happened right after CNN Plus launched to less than exciting numbers. Uh, Axios initially reported that they were getting fewer than 10,000 uh, daily viewers. Uh, within like two weeks of launching. And that compares to an average day on CNN, the cable channel, featuring about 750,000 viewers. So, so obviously a new product, a streaming platform, is going to have fewer viewers at first. But we, we're talking a really stark difference and, mm-hmm. and clearly an indication that not a lot of the regular CNN viewers were being converted to CNN+. Plus. Uh, partly because why would you pay more for the service that does not include the thing you're already watching, but is just more things like the thing you're already watching, but you've already learned those things because you already watched the thing, right? And how alike are those things? I mean, watching Anderson Cooper do another show might be similar in the fact that it's Anderson Cooper, but if you're watching CNN Live to find out what's happening live yes then you know there is no live component to cnn plus it's listen part of this if you're not familiar with the business side of it is that cnn is one of the mainstays of a cable package still cnn espn and espn is similar if you get espn plus it does not include a live stream of espn because that would cannibalize espn's core business which is getting money from cable companies as being the reason people still buy cable. And CNN is the same way. A lot of people just have that cable package for live sports and live news. And so Mm -hmm. they cannot put CNN proper into CNN Plus without completely upending their relationship with cable companies and eating a ton of their profit from that. But they could have included some kind of live something Like, you know, NBC has all their weird news things bundled into Peacock, whatever that's called now. NBC News Now or the MSNBC (laughs) hub on Peacock. I don't care what you call it. What I know is if I scroll through Peacock for 25 minutes, I will eventually find the button to press to see some sort of live newscast. CNN Plus doesn't have that. 
The closest you get are some shows that are released live as they air, so to speak, but then you just watch them on demand anytime. So it's not really appointment viewing, and it's not like a constant stream where if you just want to catch up on the war in Ukraine, for example, you know you can flip that on. You might flip it on and just find a bunch of tiles to watch old episodes of Anthony Bourdain and, you know, Stanley Tucci living his best life. And as much as I love Stanley Tucci living his best life, that is not what I tune into CNN for. Not at all, though that might be the most appealing thing for on me. On CNN Plus? At, yeah. On CNN Plus. Yeah, they have all the plus. They have none of the core thing that would make the plus the exciting bonus. You know what I mean? It's all bonus, no actual substance. Well, and I think that beyond that donuts for dinner issue that you're describing, mm, yes. when you compare it to something like ESPN, those fans want every piece of content that they can, like like a hardcore sports fan wants to know every minutia of their team. And I'm not sure that CNN fandom is quite the same thing. No. I do not think CNN fandom is like that at all. Like, part of me wonders if this is just a real misunderstanding of their consumer base. Yeah, and I have I have a feeling some of the new bosses at Wabro Disco feel the same way uh, because as Axios has just reported uh, it's getting worse for CNN Plus very quickly and the new uh, the new bosses have already decided to uh, let's say uh, invite the CFO of CNN to find a new job to perhaps pursue new opportunities perhaps you could be a chief financial officer anywhere else but definitely not here where you have spent a lot of money on something no one is watching Woof. one of the other things that you mentioned about uh chris licht and that he hasn't started yet yeah. i did find it interesting though that um variety did mention he's been in meetings still, even though he hasn't started yet. So he's sitting in on these meetings with Saslav. So I'm wondering, even though he hasn't officially taken over, how present he is in this decision making. I imagine he's at least up on it, if not influencing it directly. And I wonder what that will do, because so many of the CNN talent uh, were so close with Zucker and really, you know, um, made quite vocal their displeasure with him, you know, uh, his being, departure, being his, his invited departure. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if, if that could cause any sort of rift there, um, you know, obviously just speculating, but yeah, what one little detail in that latest Axios report, which, of course, like all of these articles we mentioned, will be in the show notes. Uh, on top of the news at CNN Plus, they heard that uh, the new leadership is looking to replace Chris Cuomo's uh, kind of, you know, punditry hour in the evening with just another hour of live newscast. And Chris Licht has said he is not a fan of the extremely opinionated content on cable news. And he is more interested in news that's just, you know, factual things with less personality. And that, you know, in a way, maybe a harder sell. One thing Jeff Zucker was really good at was understanding, especially during the Trump years, that personality and opinion brought in viewers. In a time of outrage, what people wanted to see were people feeling outraged with them and pointing Mm -hmm. out how wild and crazy and unprecedented it is. Um, But 
I think we can mostly, at least uh, you and I can agree, that, that that has a corrosive element that has not helped uh, the discourse, to put it one way, and that there could be some benefit in a more mild-mannered approach or a more uh, traditional newscaster approach, which would de-emphasize the personalities and perhaps make Chris Licht not as concerned about the talent, the specific talent that feels a, a loyalty to Zucker. I agree uh, wholeheartedly on that, particularly on the corrosive nature, though I'm always concerned that someone saying they want things to be less editorialized means that they actually want some sort of both sides That's moderacy. the scary part. Yeah. I, yep, I see that too. Mm-hmm. And we'll have so. to see. We're just speculating a bit here. And, and obviously right. Licht is en route to the job and will speak more about it when he gets there. Uh, though he will not speak about it on Twitter because he did announce he's leaving Twitter. Sure. I mean, that shows a great deal of judgment and I'm thrilled for his I'm his thrilled growth. for his sanity. I'm, I'm really happy for him. Congratulations, Chris. Not just on the job, more importantly, on your self-control. This is CNN. Wow, we made it through all of the failing streaming services. That was a lot of news about floundering streaming services. That poor Netflix. I don't know if it's long for this world. So sad. I'm optimistic that it'll have some sort of bounce back. Yeah, maybe it'll get acquired by Wabro Disco. Wabro Disconet? Wabro Skynet. It's the new company that just uh, owns all of the streaming, just all of it, and then don't leave your house, because if you do, you might find out that the robots took over years ago. Nothing terrifying happening here. No need to worry. No, everything here is great. We're just having a good time watching some very affordable streaming content. In fact, it is as as affordable as free, free streaming content. Did you know some streaming services cost nothing? Tell me more. I know. This is wild. I thought that free TV ended when um, they threw out those antennas and said you could get digital ones. And I went, digital antennas? Yeah, right. But instead, it turns out there is free streaming on the internet. And one of those free streaming platforms is owned by Amazon.com. Have you heard of Amazon.com and streaming in the same sentence? Uh, um, the place where I buy everything, even though I feel horrible about it, that Amazon.com? Yes, that one, that one that also has the Maisel. That's the one where you can buy, like, I buy a lot of stuff there, too. So when you actually make me think on the spot of a thing you'd buy there, I'm like, shoe holders and Maisel. <laughs> So that's what's on Amazon.com. But it turns out that's not their only streaming platform. You don't need to be a Prime member to enjoy some fantastic television content uh, from a little upstart called IMDb TV, which, yes, is associated with IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, which, yes, is owned by Amazon because, yeah, of course. Uh, But it turns out IMDb TV... That's not the name anymore, because Amazon is making a big push into free ad-supported streaming. And so they were like, what's a name that makes people go, oh, it's free, and it's TV. And what if that name was, I, oh, how about Free V? I'm done for the day. It gets a point across. Free V. I get it. 
Was this also a decision that happened when Jeff Bezos went to space? Maybe. Maybe they were really working on it for a long time. And when he went up on the rocket, everyone was like, guys, we have one hour to just (laughs) pick a name, hit command save, and get out of here. And somebody went, "Ah, freebie. And they all went, ah, we have 59 minutes left to go drink. Let's go. It seems better than the original name, which was going to be Free Dive. Yeah, that's the worst name of them all. So the service was originally called Free Dive because that really screams success. Then they rebranded it imdb.tv, imdbtv.com. And you know what? Something with IMDb and TV in it because they went, well, that's at least a brand that doesn't scream disaster. Uh, And now they went, well, what's something that only sort of screams disaster in that it rhymes with Quibi? How about Freebie? Well, Quibi was such a massive success. It's great. Anything that makes me think of Quibi, I'm immediately attracted to. Like a moth to flame. And this isn't just a rebrand. No, no. Because Amazon is uh, planning on a major spending boost. And so I I have a few nuggets here from Deadline. Uh, The plan is for Freebie to grow its original slate by 70% in 2022, including the spinoff of the longest-running original series on Prime Video, Bosch Legacy. Do you remember Bosch? I Sure. I would have told you Bosch was a really, really old Netflix original, but I realized that's actually Lilyhammer, and Bosch is just a really, really old Amazon original that's probably interchangeable most of the time. But Lilyhammer at least had Stevie Van Zandt, so... That's true. That's true. Where's our reboot of Lilyhammer legacy, Netflix? A little too cheap to up your your spend budget now, huh? (laughs) But I digress, because we're also going to get some uh, kind of reality shows, it sounds like, a home design series called Hollywood House Lift. Definitely sounds like something I can skip. And a uh, comedy series called Sprung, the Australian crime drama Tropo. And High School, a scripted series adapted for television, produced uh, by Plan B, and based on the New York Times best-selling memoir by Grammy-nominated platinum recording an- uh, artist Tegan and Sarah. It was a long road to get to the part of that one that's interesting. Tegan and Sarah are, are getting a TV show. And adapted by Clea Duvall, I, that sounds like it's going to be gay and great. Yes, I will agree. <laughs> Both of those things sound true. So they might get me to tune into Freebie. Wherever yeah. that is. How do I watch that? I I, they, I assume there's an app. Is it just on Amazon like Prime? I think it's a different website because you're not paying for Prime if you have Freebie. Oh, brother. It's already I, a lot of work. Already giving me a headache. But that's great news because the more streaming options, the better. As we know from Reed Hastings, consumers love choice, even if those choices are bad. <laughs> and speaking of bad choices, one more news story this week. And it's about Dancing with the Stars. How's that for a transition? Uh, I don't know what they score things out of. 6.0? 10.0? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 16.0. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That's a regular Sean Spicer score right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dancing with the Stars, Variety reports that it's moving to Disney+. Plus. And that, a little surprising, because part of me was like, oh, why not Hulu? Interesting that they would choose Disney+. Plus. The part of this headline that actually blew my mind and made me want to weep inside is that uh, it is moving to Disney Plus after 30 seasons on ABC. 30 
seasons of Dancing with the Stars. I can only assume that each of those seasons was two weeks long. Uh Uh-huh. Or I'm actually 54 years old and I don't know it. (laughs) It could be that the pandemic really messed with my sense of time. I don't know. Well, it did. It definitely did. But 30 seasons. 30 seasons. And season 31 is coming to Disney+. Plus. I'll still skip it, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, but good for them. Happy days all around. And you know what? While we're on a happy note, it's time for a a little mini-segment that I'm calling Video Games. Can they save the streaming universe now? That is, of course, Chemical Plant Zone from Sonic the Hedgehog 2, which is timely because Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is in movie theaters. And and while we're not a movies podcast, I did want to revisit our discussion about video game IP getting really popular really fast in the entertainment world. And Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is a legitimate hit. Not surprising, really, given that they'd already greenlit Sonic the Hedgehog 3 and the Idris Elba Knuckles spinoff that I will never stop talking about. Uh, But it is doing so well that it almost beat the new uh, Harry Potter universe movie in Sonic's second week in the box office. It almost beat the premiere week of the new Dumbledore, Grindelwald, whatever thing. And so I, I just think it shows when families are picking right now, they have a strong inclination to pick the video game movie over mm. the like whimsical world of wizardry. A- and that that's a shift. It is, though I will say I wonder how much of that is just that those Grindeldorfs, whatever, just are bad, that people know that they're bad, that they haven't advertised them as being more than bad, and that Hopefully, a a big part of me wants it to be that people get that J.K. Rowling is uh, objectionable in her public behavior these days, and they're, you know, using their conscience at the box office. Or maybe they just heard they're bad. Or maybe they just heard they're bad. They were bad and long. Yeah, yeah. And what's funny is, I I doubt Sonic the Hedgehog is a miraculous work of art. I'm sure it's fun, and I do plan on watching it when it's available on, like, Paramount Plus for free. But uh, I think it's interesting that people are going in saying, well, I I know that that won't take itself as seriously. A Sonic the Hedgehog movie with Jim Carrey as Dr. Robotnik is not going to take itself too seriously. Whereas The the Crimes of Grindenhoodle is an overly serious vibe for a completely goofy fantastical story thanks for continually changing the last syllable of that with me i like to think of it as like a millennial name or i guess it's like a gen z name like a millennial baby name like kaylee lynn and kaylee line (laughs) grindenflau uh, and I can't wait to to meet her and see her in another J.K. Rowling spinoff in 50 years when they can just go straight to the metaverse, whatever the straight-to-video version of the, the future is. Free V. Free V. Straight to Free V. Uh, but that is not the only video game IP news I wanted to touch on. Uh, Jason Momoa, a, a world-famous celebrity at this point, Jason Momoa, is in talks to star in the new Minecraft movie. And if you're not really familiar with Minecraft, all I really want to point out here is Minecraft is the most popular video game on the planet. 
It is played by, like, hundreds of millions of people. It is absurd how popular Minecraft is. And uh, it is a game about mining and crafting. It's kind of an open-worldy thing. There there are uh, servers you can play on where there's combat or, or more of a structured game to it. But it, it is, in, in its essence, whatever you make of it. And so the idea of a Minecraft movie is what what i don't know and on top of that a live action minecraft movie it's one of those things where the characters are real blocky and kind of look like digital legos so the idea of a live action minecraft movie starring jason momoa and directed by the director of napoleon dynamite is just super interesting uh is minecraft at all a spin-off or sequel of minesweeper Honestly, I would also see a Minesweeper movie. I would definitely see Jason Momoa in a Minesweeper movie. Yes. I would. I would. Either way, whatever that movie's going to be, it gives me hope that Paramount Plus might finally greenlight a a gritty tropical crime series where Detective K.K. Slider solves brutal animal murders in the islands. If you need a script coordinator, give me a call. Yes. And uh, finally, in game news this week, going video game adjacent, gaming in the world of games. Are are you familiar, Diane, with the card game Exploding Kittens? I've actually played that game. Me too. I know nothing about gaming and I've played that game. Yeah, it's one of those, I I like to think of it as like the post-Cards Against Humanity world where Mm -hmm. everyone got excited about the idea of these, these kind of funky card games at parties and then everyone played Cards Against Humanity too many times and went, well, somebody has to make another one that's different. And so Exploding Kittens is a popular one. Uh, I, I read one article describe it as like kind of millennial Uno and went, sure, that that seems fine. Uh, Exploding mm-hmm. Kittens. Interesting card game. Okay. So naturally, Netflix has announced an Exploding Kittens animated series starring Lucy Liu. Great. Sure. I mean, Lucy Liu. Love Lucy Who, Liu. Is she a kitten? Don't know. No details. Oh, we do know who's creating it. And it is Mike Judge and Greg Daniels, the duo that created King of the Hill. Uh, tonally, this could be going in a very interesting place. Yes. I, I have no sense of what the plot of that would be. Netflix also did the uh, recent video game adaptation Cuphead, which was at least based on an animated video game uh, with an old school animation shtick style. So, so they've been dabbling in those adaptations already. Uh, but adapting a card game, this is where we are. I mean, if they hired me to make an Uno spinoff, I'd do it. Personally, I'm holding out for the Yahtzee show, the, uh, you know, (laughs) extremely serialized period piece about Yahtzee starring Lucy Liu and Jason Momoa. I'm just going for it. Yeah. Yeah. Dream big. Well, you know, speaking of dreaming big, there's a a big dream I want to talk about uh, this week, Uh, a dream of queer representation on TV. And there's a show that has just finished airing on HBO Max that actually achieves that in a surprising way. And spoiler alert, we're going to talk about the entire first season. So if you've been racing to finish it, uh, you might want to tune out right now and rejoin us after you've finished all 10 episodes of Our Flag Means Death. From nowhere That's a transition to the review of the week. 
Uh, we're talking about Our Flag Means Death. A very enjoyable show. I was telling Chris before we started that I have watched all 10 episodes of Our Flag Means Death in the last two days. So I'm your impressed. classic binge. Yep, you did it. You really did it. Someone still binges television. Oh, and honestly, uh, this is a show that I think might have been better received if it had come out in a binge format. I'm not usually a pusher of the binge format, but one of the interesting things about the reception for this show is it premiered at the very beginning of March, uh, March 2nd, I think, mm-hmm. and it, the, the reviews initially were kind of mixed, and the buzz was muted, and by the end of March, you know, less than a month later, really, it was uh, outpacing euphoria in interest on HBO Max. And obviously the euphoria season's ended now, but it, the fact that it ramped up to such a really buzzy level uh, over the course of the month, I think partly has to do with the fact that the story got really, really good in the back half of the season. And the first few episodes while fun, while entertaining, didn't set you up for what a kind of substantial show it is. I agree. I think part of that was a rather unusual choice to not introduce uh, one of the two protagonists of the show until the end of the third episode. Um, Really episode four. Episode four. Yeah. I mean, he's he's sort of teased in three, I should say. Um, And that's... uh, uh, Taika Waititi, uh, who is also an EP on the show and directed the pilot yes. um, as uh, Blackbeard, also known as Ed Teach. Teach? Steed? Steed. No, Steed is the other pirate. Well, you, you Bonnet. Can... I think it's Ed Teach and Steed Bonnet. The names on this show are a lot of fun. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt. Hey, who is Steed Bonnet? We should talk about Steed Bonnet. This is an actual historical person. Steed Bonnet, known as the Gentleman Pirate, was an actual uh, aristocrat who left his life of luxury to become the Gentleman Pirate, which in reality didn't last long and he got killed. But in reality, it did overlap with the time of Blackbeard which also it wasn't that short and he got killed. But in the course of the show, their paths intertwine very directly and a kind of really fascinating dynamic blossoms between them. But the show starts out with basically three episodes that's just Steed being bad at being a pirate. And those are charming. Um, uh, Steed is played by the remarkable Reese Darby, who folks know probably mostly from Flight of the Concords, but from a bunch of good comic stuff. He's hilarious. Um, and, and those th- first three episodes are, you know, entertaining. They're not super funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, for a comedy series, it's not the sort of laugh a minute thing that you might get from something like what we do in the shadows. Yeah, and I remember thinking at the end of the pilot that that I I wanted it to be more like what we do in the shadows, that it felt like it was leaning on the mockumentary style a little bit, but it, it's not a mockumentary. But there mm-hmm. is this element of Steed is... Uh, recording his journals to one of his, uh, you know, crew members, 
and and is detailing his day in a way that you might detail it to the camera in a mockumentary format. There's a bit of a workplace vibe to it because it's the the ship is the workplace and the crew is a bunch of goofy, you know, mismatched people and all of that had this this kind of vibe that made me go honestly just make, you know, just make it a talk to the camera what we do in the shadow style mockumentary. And even though that conceptually makes no sense for the era, I don't care because mockumentaries conceptually don't make a lot of sense most of the time. So who cares if the presence of a cameraman, so to speak, is completely anachronistic. The show's already an- anachronistic in the way they treat language and some of the jokes. So fine, mm-hmm. just lean into it, do it. And I think to their credit, the show is more interesting than that. And especially once Blackbeard shows up, the show is something so much better than a anachronistic mockumentary workplace shtick. But it wasn't clear at first where they were going. And I think maybe some of that is they, you know, in many cases, figure it out as they get through the season, as they break the story, as they write more episodes, as they start to shoot and and see the dynamic. Uh, They they get a better handle on what the vibe of the show is. but at the same time, I also think they were building a story here that needed us to see Steed before Blackbeard so we could understand just how Blackbeard changes Steed. I agree with that. And I think how, how Steed changes Blackbeard as well, because it's one of those stories where the two main characters are in many ways polar opposites who will help each other grow, sort of like the um, concept we were talking about um, on the episode where we talked about the show Minx, um, where you have sort of the straight-laced uptight person, and then um, their opposite is sort of the uh, a little more of a scoundrel. Though, uh, okay, so now we're getting well into the spoilers here. So just a reminder that if you haven't seen season one, you can stop here. We've warned you so many times now. (laughs) Um, That what blossoms between them is actually like a beautiful love story. And it turns out to be a rom-com. Yeah. Um, uh, And also so rare that a rom-com works on TV. That's true, though I think, you know, this the workplace sitcom, we have seen some success with it, you yeah. know, the, the Jim and Pam, the Leslie and Ben, and, you know, like those other mockumentary workplaces where you have your, you know, uptight, horrible boss, which is sort of what they presented Steed as in the first few episodes, um, you know, with a ragtag ensemble. Um those ones can show that like, ah, these like love stories blossom into more though in, in the uh, sort of Michael Schur verse of shows, those are sort of sexless all the time. Like, you know, like they're uh, romantic in the sense that they like appeal to our better selves and there's like a sweetness and a love at their core, but they're not like, there's nothing really steamy about them. And I feel that uh, the romantic situation here at the core of this show is actually, you know, like much more titillating yeah. as a viewer, yeah. even though it's not really explicitly sexual. Yeah, it, it feels much more about chemistry and mm-hmm. unexpected chemistry to them as well than about a will they, won't they uh, flirtiness that is more platonic but fun this feels a little more dangerous at first to them like they they don't quite know how they feel and what's also kind of fun about that choice is the show 
uh, after a few episodes, you realize is very queer friendly. And in fact, they they make no bones about the fact that some of the pirates sleep with each other. Some of the one of the uh, crew members is impersonating a man. And then you find out that they're not a man. And then you think they're, well, okay, it's a woman. But then they, they choose to be gendered they, them. And it's not something that is considered weird or, or specific or what are you doing. Instead, you know, I kind of was worried when um, it's Jim, when Jim mm. is revealed to not be Jim, that they were going to make a huge thing out of the fact that, well, the, the woman can't be a pirate. And instead, they made Jim one of the most interesting characters on the show. I love Jim. And I love the romance between Jim and their best friend, uh, Oluwande, um, which also blossoms over the course of the season. Uh, oh, man. I was also concerned with, um, so there is an antagonist, really, in the first season, too, who is um, Izzy. The, um, Izzy Hands. Form- Izzy Hands, what a name, uh, the former first mate of Blackbeard, who does not approve of the direction that Blackbeard is sort of taking the crew and um, ends up sort of betraying them. But at one point, he is saying something about what's happened uh, to Jim. And even while he is attacking them, he uses the right pronouns. <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not that kind of monster. <laughs> Yeah, and and there there are funny moments when like Izzy finds two of the crew members uh, hooking up, and he's not angry that they're h- hooking up because it's gay. He's angry that right. they're hooking up because they're slacking off, and he wants them to go like clean the barnacles off the ship. Uh, that's that's the kind of queer friendly universe the show eases you into. It doesn't jump to that right away. That kind of creeps up on you in a really interesting way that again makes the show seem like one thing at first and then deepen into something much more interesting and much more original as the season progresses. In that way, it sort of reminded me of the series Schitt's Creek, uh, which, you know, the first season was more about their, um, economic precarity and i think that they did mention some issues with uh that like they might have said that david was bi early yeah on. that's the most they really got at they even flirted with the like will they won't they with uh stevie stevie in in season one which which they then found a way to kind of tie that together later uh in a in a really touching way about their overall dynamic uh, mm-hmm. but in the first season i i remember really struggling with that i was like but I would never believe that they would. Why would you will they, won't they, David and Stevie? That just doesn't make any sense. Um, For either of them. At all. And and to their credit, they they figured that out. And they went in a very different direction once they did. And it, and it again, kind of eased you into a much more warm uh, embrace of a show. Yeah, and in a sense that the show had, like, you know, a gay love story at its center, but it was not a show about overcoming homophobia, really. Um, You know, it was just, like, about these people finding each other in that sweet, really sweet kind of tender romance. And it seems, to me, that seemed like a a parallel here. I think that's a really great comparison. Uh, and, And it's one where, while... You know, Schitt's Creek ends in a very happy place. Obviously, they had a chance to wrap up a whole five-season run. Um, right. Uh, but uh, the end of the first season of Our Flag Means Death 
is at you know if it's a rom-com movie we're at you know the the act two moment where everything goes wrong Mm -hmm. uh steed and ed are are for a moment going to run off together and start a new life together and then steed doesn't show up and ed clearly jilted goes back to izzy and goes back to his ship and goes back to being the ruthless blackbeard he was when we first met him in you know episode four yeah, or perhaps even more so. Yeah. It, even more ruthless and, and cruel. Uh, interesting, too, that that is such a classic rom-com beat. I mean, the really? we're going to meet up and run away together, and, and one of them doesn't show. S- spoiler alert for the film Casablanca, but, like, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's, like, one of the great, you know, cinematic love stories. I think that part of me wonders why the show was not advertised as a rom-com, and what what the thinking was behind that choice there wasn't a ton of marketing for the show not generally. a lot before it hit no though there i did watch a trailer and um was excited about it because i love restarby and i love taika so i was like okay great yeah but um uh there was not even a hint of the queer elements that i recall in no and and it's an interesting question because Part of it, I wonder, it was just pure marketing uh, calculation that that might lessen its broad appeal, Mm -hmm. that might make it seem like something that people don't want to watch because that doesn't sound funny or that doesn't sound fun. Um, And then part of me also wonders if they didn't want to give away where it was going uh, right away. Because, number one, if you told me it was going to be like this queer rom-com, after the first two or three episodes, I would have said, bullshit, I don't see what you're talking about. And also, it was kind of a, a exciting turn of events when it became that serious. Because in the middle of the season, and th- this is our, our transition into the conversation about the evergreen topic of queer baiting, but in the middle of the season, there was a sense of, well, they're playing this like there might be a romantic element between Steed and Ed. They're playing the scenes like it. They're playing physically like it. The writing is leaning into it. Everything is leaning into this is a little charged. It's a little sexual, even though it's not explicitly, and there is no sign that they are acknowledging that whatsoever. It just all the direction, all the writing, all the acting is leaning that way. But if you are a queer viewer of television, you've been there before, and you have found out, no, they're straight. No, 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 you just, that was just, no, you're reading into that too much, honey. And so it was, there was a moment in the middle where I'm like, I don't, I don't know what they're doing here. But at the same time around then, they start to have some of those scenes with the rest of the crew being queer. And, and that gives you a bit of a sense that, okay, well, the show is definitely acknowledging queer characters, so it seems like they know what they're doing, and it seems hard to imagine that they would be queer baiting at the same time. And then they finally hit it, and it takes them until, like, episode nine before they really make it 100% explicit what's going on. And that moment is really satisfying because you weren't sure as the audience, you were in like a will they, won't they with the show. Mm-hmm. There's a, a great moment in episode eight uh, where Lucius, who is um, uh, sort of a scribe. and He's uh, the one who can read and write on the boat. He's the one who can read and write on the boat um, and is openly gay. Uh, 
um, is sitting in front of uh, Blackbeard, Ed, and um, Steed, and and watching what's happening between them. (laughs) And he says aloud, oh my God, this is happening, which I think is also that this is happening is the name of the episode. So in case viewers are still not sure, you know, they're really... They do get us there before the kiss, before, spoiler alert, the kiss that really like seals seals the deal in terms of going all the way there uh, and not just flirting with it, uh, for for lack of a better word. Yeah, I still think that advertising it as a rom-com might have paid off. And obviously the show's done really well, so like, you know, despite the fact that it was under-marketed, but I think... Has not been renewed yet. Right, right. Which is interesting. But also, as we covered earlier, time of transition at uh, Wabro Disco. And so it could just be with HBO Max uh, shifting leadership, they might just be holding off on decisions that they otherwise know they're going to make. Right. And also the show um, had a weird release schedule. Even though it was 10 episodes, it wasn't over 10 weeks. And so it really did just come out last month, really. Um, we're recording this on April 19th. So, you know, um, if it premiered in March, it's not that late still for it to get that second no, season it, pickup. it's not. And and they're just doing the kind of press tour that I would have expected sooner, where they're actually giving the interviews about the the twist, so to speak, about the, the rom-com uh, element that was hidden within the show all along. Uh, there's some of those links we will include in the show notes so you can hear uh, the show's creator talk about how he felt about the audience reaction to the queer romance, which I thought was really interesting because uh, he has some quotes in particular in this interview with The Verge that we'll include where he didn't realize how uh, burned some viewers mm-hmm. were by queer baiting. And how some viewers really were kind of biting their lip during those middle season episodes, which all basically dropped one week because they they did drop in chunks. So it was kind of like one week of biting your lip really hard and going, are they going to fuck this up? And and to their credit, they didn't. But what was interesting about this interview is he he didn't realize how... Uh, hard it was for people to worry about that about how they mm-hmm. felt like i've been you know fool me once shame on you but you're not going to fool me again to quote a right. wise wise man um <laughs> and so I, I thought that was an interesting moment to also just talk about like experience with queer baiting in uh tv in particular and it's something that you know, I feel like I've seen many times, but for whatever reason, the thing I always come back to is Sherlock season one of Mm. Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock, where it really felt like they were uh, flirting with a gay Holmes or a queer Holmes, which it was, he he was such an interesting take on the character to begin with. It was really an exciting idea. And of course, some people saw that as maybe a Holmes Watson relationship, but it didn't have to be Holmes Watson specifically to just be the idea of a, a Holmes who isn't that straight man's man in the Dickensian sense of, right. of the classic. And they not just backpedaled on that. They, like, came out and said, like, no, he is straight. They are straight, which which burns. It burns. Yeah, there's also something very insulting about that when they come out like that. Like, oh, no, you read it wrong. You watched it wrong. Yeah. Like, like there's something prurient about the way that you're consuming it. 
instead of that, you know, it was actually laid out with those story beats. I was thinking of this recently with uh, the new, the trailer for the new Thor movie came out this week that um, Taika is directing. And um, there are some little hints that, um, you know, super fans have picked up on and um, been tweeting about of a possible um, romantic subplot between Thor and Peter Quinn. And, you know, obviously that's like, fans are looking for those queer stories uh particularly in, in something in marvel, marvel. movies that's gonna right. that's gonna hurt you it's honey gonna, <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna burn them but like i think that you know the success of this uh and the fact that taika is one of the creators is giving people hope about it um but you know i don't, I don't think that's gonna happen you know particularly with the, a chris pratt role it seems unlikely but i mean if you look at the the clips that they lay out from the trailer, like the fans aren't wrong that they are setting up those moments for people. And they are, I, I just don't believe that they're not being presented intentionally that way sometimes. Sure, sometimes creators might be making an error where like, oh, we didn't realize that we had built up this incredible chemistry between these stars. But sometimes it's intentional. Yeah. And I, I, I have a feeling, especially with like cutting together a trailer for the Marvel audience who want to dissect every moment and for mm -hmm. whom there are many queer fans who are underserved, to say the least, that you're going to lean into that in some ways. And you might lean into it with the best of intentions, but if it's not there in the material, it is queer baiting. Yeah. Reason enough to be excited about this show is that it's subverting that expectation, but also just as it develops, I really love these characters not just the two leads who are outstanding but just like they're no, just the, such a the whole cast fun ragtag crew really comes together yeah i have to say and it, it is again it's interesting if you watch the first couple episodes and it doesn't hook you uh i would say give it give it through the halfway point in the season once blackbeard shows up it is destabilizing at first, and there is a, a bit of a moment in the middle where they're tossing a lot of celebrity cameos in. There's Leslie mm -hmm. Jones, there's Fred Armisen, and at first it feels like, okay, so like every week, is there just going to be a different goofy celebrity playing some kind of piratey person? And and that's that's kind of funny, but that's not super satisfying in terms of character development because you have this core cast of people that I want to see develop because I spend every week with them. And yeah. again, to their credit, they throw in a lot of these characters and then they bring them back in and then they kind of like let them simmer in the pan and then they kind of mix them up in a stir fry in a new episode where different characters we've now met interact with other characters and Leslie Jones is back and oh there's Fred Armisen again for an episode and you realize they're building out this kind of pirate cinematic universe. Yeah, one of my favorite <laughs> um, of those cameos was Nick Kroll uh, yes. who's, and, and Kristen Schaal, I think it is. Yes. They were, oh my God, they were amazing. I love them so much. I, I'm already fans of theirs, and but I didn't totally get how their comedic sensibilities would fit into this world, and they just really do. Perfect. And in an episode where Steed got to show his special skills as the gentleman mm -hmm. pirate, that episode was all about him introducing Blackbeard to aristocratic society and teaching him the vicious pain of passive aggression. <laughs> and it, hey. it, it, it actually turned in a fantastic way that was both hilarious and 
uh, developed their relationship. I kind of that was that was an episode for me where it went from being funny, kind of interesting week to week, to being really funny and not just interesting, but like oh, you're building to something here. Like the characters are going somewhere. And the great thing about that too is that the the audience built with it. So with that growth, it just seems to me to prove that number one streaming shows can like build based on online chatter, word of mouth, you know, things spreading beyond um, having like necessarily uh, some identifiable IP at their core, you know, like that a really an original show could find its audience without a lot of marketing support um, based mostly on like people sharing memes, (laughs) it seems like. Uh, and telling their friends to watch the show is really exciting to me about like where original programming could go on streaming. Yeah, yes, and it, and in a way that's been the the interesting story of HBO Max in particular because obviously HBO's originals have always had a high pedigree and and the new HBO series that have hit HBO Max are great but this is a Max original and one of mm-hmm. the themes of the Max originals so far is that a lot of them have been original IP that is really exciting and builds through a lot of word of mouth I think of Hacks I think of this show, oh, yeah. obviously. They're making a, an interesting niche for themselves where they're taking bets on new ideas that are not rooted in any anything more than like a great creative team or a, a celebrity star like, you, you know, um, like your Gene Smart or your Taika Waititi. Like that, that, okay, great. That's a hook. I love them. And then you get in and you go, wow, this whole team is firing on all cylinders. This idea is great. This this minx is another great example there mm-hmm. where you, you get in the door with a buzzy pitch or your love of Jake Johnson, and then you, you sit down and relax because there's this great, great ensemble and some good storytelling. Completely agree. Really stellar ensemble. I hope there's a season two. I know. We've gotten to the end of this now, and I'm like, and if they don't renew this, I am going to fill the podcast feed with this episode over and over and over again in protest. And it's such a good episode. You, dear listener, would want to go give us five stars on Apple Podcasts right now. Uh, You can also, of course, uh, leave leave a comment. Tell us what you think of the show. Tell us what you think of the shows that we talk about on this show. That's called a meta comment right there. And you can write to us. The email address is podcast at streamageddon.com. Or find us on Twitter. I am at I am Chris Barlow. Diane is at Diane Nora with two N's. We are the gentlemen pirates of Twitter. So you can always find us there. I've heard that if you don't subscribe, you are susceptible to scurvy. That's correct. Correct. You'll need a lot of oranges to get over the scurvy that you will catch if you don't smash that follow button and tell a friend (laughs) about this little podcast called Streamageddon. But for now, we have to hit the high seas. So we'll see you again next time when we continue to investigate the Netflockalypse. And, and excellent, excellent TV shows. We'll see you then. From nowhere, I guess I take my time.